What do CGN leaders believe about things like critical race theory or how we should relate to those who identify as LGBTQ? Is talking about spiritual formation biblical or does it open people up to unbiblical influences? Welcome to the CGN Mission and Methods Podcast, Season 3. My name is Nick Cady. I'm the pastor of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado, and I will be your host this season. The goal and vision of this podcast is that this would be a forum for communication about Calvary Global Network. We want to share with you some of the stories about what God is doing. We want to talk about some of the initiatives that we're involved in spearheading. And we also want to answer some of the questions you might have about who we are as a network. In the episodes in this season, I'm joined by Kellen Criswell, the former executive director and now global strategist for CGN. And in many episodes, I'm also joined by Brian Broderson, founder and president of CGN and the pastor of Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. In this episode of the CGN Mission and Methods podcast, we open up the mailbag and answer some of the questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. I ask Brian Broderson and Kellen Criswell questions related to some of the most pressing cultural issues of our day, including racism, social justice, LGBTQ issues, and more, giving them a chance to respond to your questions and share their thoughts on these matters. Make sure to listen for a clip from Pastor Chuck Smith in which he gives his take on racial prejudice and even white supremacy in the church. Here's the episode. Welcome to the CGM Mission and Methods podcast. This is Nick Cady, and in today's episode, we're going to be looking at some questions that came in both on some of our online platforms as well as from the conference in 2021. We had an opportunity there for people to submit questions. Not all those questions got addressed from the panel, and so I thought this would be a great opportunity. Personally, I love mailbag episodes, and so that's what this is, responding two questions that have come in regarding CGN and regarding some of your stances personally. So I'm joined today by Brian Broderson and Kellen Criswell. Hey guys, welcome. Hey Nick. Thanks man. Good to be back. I know that some of these questions are ones that that people want to hear from you on. So I think this is a great opportunity to do that. So jumping right in, let's ask this question. Brian, do you ascribe to CRT, critical race theory? Wow. Yes or no? <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I do not. Sometimes, you know, obviously, since the question is being asked, some people you know, must have assumed that somehow I did. But no, I don't. Uh, that doesn't mean that I do not believe that there has been a history of systemic racism and injustice in the country. And there, there are still remnants of that today. But CRT as a, you know, kind of a working lens through which I see the world. No, not at all. And the problem with CRT is, you know, it's many different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of some people will go back to the origins of CRT back in the 70s. You know, it's a legal theory, a lawyer, so I don't have any interest in that part of it. But I, I think the current manifestation of it culturally, where I think it has moved, you know, race is a component of it. I think people have kind of even hijacked some of the ideas to apply it in much broader areas with intersectionality and so forth that is completely unhealthy for society. And so, you know, again, I mean, obviously it began with, with the racial elements to it, 
But then when you take it and I think it's it's I mean, obviously it's a, it's applied to, to race today as well. And once again, because we have a resurgence of, of racial issues and discussions in the country. But, you know, the LGBT community, of course, has jumped on CRT, not using CRT, but taking all the components of it and applying it to their situation. The trans community is doing the same thing. And that's where I think it's become just, you know, out of control. I think something that could be important here is like, you know, we've all heard that statement, the devil's in the details. <laughs> to me, it's the the great problem of discourse today in our culture is actually the opposite. The devil's in the non-details. So we'll throw out these words. Are you reformed? It's like, I think conversations like this, we need to say like, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so even with this, it's like CRT, like you're saying, there's, there's a historical development of this. There's a, there's a contemporary situation where people are pulling pieces of it and saying, this is CRT, but it's not really the historical thing. And it's not even the whole current thing. So maybe as you're expressing you, the fact that you don't subscribe to CRT, can you tell us what you think of when you hear CRT? How would you personally define that right now? Well, I mean, obviously, you know, for some people, CRT is, it, it means systemic injustice or racism, so the belief that because of racism, systems have been developed in yeah. our country that reinforce the, yeah. the, the suppression of yeah. minority groups. And, and so for some people, and, and I think that's clearly implied in CRT, but for some people, that's that's all it means that that's, you know, so if you if you have any kind of sympathy, you know, toward minorities or anything like that, then you easily get tagged as being CRT, mm. which I think is absurd and it's not I think one of the big problems that people have where they'll even say this is a theological issue is that they'll say and again what is CRT that is not easily defined and and a lot of people have different working definitions or even different assumptions that they may not even articulate but the big thing that some Christians take issue with is they think that it negates personal responsibility for Mm -hmm. sin. Mm. Yeah. And of course, in some cases it would, you know, a secularist doesn't even think in terms of sin. So personal responsibility doesn't factor in. It's all, the problem is in the system. So we got to fix the system. And then when we get the system fixed, everybody's going to be okay. But I, I think biblically it's more accurate to recognize that the problem is both. The problem is with the within the individual. That's the sin nature in the heart. And the problem's in the system because the system developed and operated by a bunch of sinners. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you just have a you know, you just have the individual issue and then you have the the bigger issue. So I think, you know, anybody who's been around poor people, minorities, lived or worked in the inner city, you know, I did that in London, you recognize that, you know, there's a system here Mm -hmm. that is very, very unhelpful when it comes to people just, you know, finding their way in life, just, you know, getting into a normal life rhythm and, and things like that. And sure, they make bad personal choices, but sometimes they make bad personal choices because that is... That, that's all there is. Those are really the only options. And I think to deny that is, I, I think it's naive. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, both things are true. I mean, I, I just, to me, I don't know why there hasn't been a lot of 
theology and reflection and conversation out of the book of Philemon on this issue these days. Mm-hmm. It really puts those two things side by side, doesn't it? Where you have Onesimus, who clearly Paul believed that this man needed to believe the gospel and be redeemed by acknowledging his personal responsibility for sin. That It's clear that that moment had arrived in this man's life. And yet that didn't negate the fact that he was part of a system of slavery that Paul was also addressing with Philemon and Onesimus. And he's telling them, you need to have a transformed gospel-centered engagement with the system that's around you in this world today that needs to be transformed by the renewing of your own mind. But he's not denying that the system exists and yeah. it's still bringing consequences that are social and relational into yeah. the even into the church situation at that time. So both are true, right? Yeah. You can be a slave and need to be redeemed, and you can be a redeemed slave and still be uh, experiencing the consequences of a corrupt system developed by corrupt human beings, right? Yeah. Yeah, and we should expect that, you know, sinful individuals will create sinful uh, things Government, in society. Government, systems. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think another element to that that we, that we rarely ever consider is the element of the principalities and powers. You know, principalities and powers are spiritual forces, but spiritual forces, they they work through human systems. You know, if you, if you think of slavery in the U.S. and, you know, you follow the history and you look at, you know, slavery morphing into Jim Crow and, and things like that, man, you realize that, you know, principalities and powers, demonic forces that are bent on human misery and destruction are influencing human beings through their sinful nature and their pride and their greed and that to oppress another group of people for, you know, their benefit. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is... Have we heard of Pharaoh <laughs> in the yeah. book of Exodus? Yeah. So, I mean, this is like sometimes that aspect of it is overlooked. But, it, you know, like I was saying in my studies over the years of really digging into, you know, racism and slavery and all of that, man, you just... You know, seeing it through a biblical lens, you just realize the incredible demonic power that was exerted in holding millions of people captive for hundreds of years. Well, it just reminds me even more recently, you know, with my background and having lived in Hungary and just the whole Eastern Bloc and the Soviet Union, you know, as you talk about a system of oppression that's demonic in origin. I mean, I think few people would deny that that was the case over there. Yeah, right. And I think there's a something that I've observed with all of these conversations. So it's is a, I think it's a bit of a fallacy. But what I see is there's something kind of in the collective mentality of culture. It seems like where if you hold a belief that has something in common with a system of thought that's otherwise kind of a weird system of thought, it's concluded that you have to believe in the whole system. So as an example. You might believe that systemic racism is a real thing in American history. And because that idea of systemic racism is tied to the broader CRT realm of thinking, people go, you believe in systemic racism, therefore you believe in critical race theory, therefore you are this. And that really is a fallacy. I believe all kinds of things from the Bible that other systems of thought put together by sinful people have pieces of. And just because we happen to have a couple views in common with another system of thought doesn't mean I am an advocate and a known, mm. uh, a, a knowledgeable, intentional advocate of the rest of that system itself. I mean, you know, I'm 
was an, a militant anarchist vegan <laughs> before I met Jesus. And I'm saved now, and that's great. And I seek to have the, the, the spirit and the word transform my mind. But I can tell you, as I've watched these Antifa situations and that over the past few years, I can see things that values they're saying they want equality, justice for all, that are actually part of the Imago Dei in them, the image of God. They are values that even God is working for, just defining it differently and going about it in very different ways. But the point being, we can have even biblical beliefs that happen to have uh, some commonality with otherwise corrupt systems, and it doesn't mean we are advocates of those systems. And I think that that's something we're missing a lot. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, in some sense, it shows, you know, like Tom Holland states in his book, Dominion, it shows, you know, the pervasive influence of, of Christianity on Western culture. So that these ideas that people hold near and dear to them actually are rooted in God, gospel. And so, of course, I mean, you can't, how far can you read in the Bible before you come across the words justice and righteousness? You know, studying today for Amos that I'm teaching tonight, man, the whole thing with Amos is an issue of justice and, and injustice. And God's going to deal with Israel because of those things. So, yeah, those aren't things that just suddenly in, in 2020 surfaced and then people jumped on a bandwagon. Uh, these <laughs> these are centuries old issues, uh, the biblical a, issues. You're not adopting the values of the culture when you start to care about justice. Yeah. You know, I would, I think it's the opposite. The culture's tuned into some things that are actually close to God's heart that yeah. we should be about. There is no room for prejudice in the heart of the child of God. I am appalled that in some churches and in some church institutions there still does exist prejudice, sometimes anti-Semitism, sometimes the almost fascist Anglo-superiority attitude, the Aryan race. God help us, these cannot and do not reflect a true Christian or his experience. It's something that I've told our church and I've told my kids even recently as well, that as Christians, man, we've been anti-racist since before it was cool. Like we've been, uh, you know, yeah. we've cared about justice since before it was popular. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I see happening right now is there's a shift where a lot of times, you know, in the 90s and in that area a lot, it was really popular to be talking about how we were in a postmodern age. And the deal with postmodernism is that um, everything's just somebody's opinion, right? Like you think this and I think that. And here's the thing. We are now in a post-postmodern age. And a lot of philosophers have been saying that we've been there for a while, but you know, it's caught, it's taken the popular culture a little bit to catch up. But what that means is that we've moved on beyond saying that there is no truth. Remember that was the big thing like a while back. Oh, you know, the problem with postmodernism, they're trying to deny that there's anything true. Well, that's certainly not the case right now in popular discourse. It's no longer that people are saying that's your opinion. They're saying things are right. Things are wrong. This is right. And this is wrong. Now we may disagree on what is right and what is wrong. But my point is we've moved from the gray back firmly into belief in black and white. Yeah. And like you're saying, Kellen, these are reflections of the Imago Dei. And, and where the culture does get something 
that's biblical, I think that we want to say, hey, we've been doing that since before it was yes. cool. It's in our book. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been thinking about this, <laughs> like the concept of, you know, say like you read Jude 3 and contend once for all the faith delivered to the saints. And I think for many of us in the church, we read that word contend and we sharpen our teeth and we grit our teeth and we get our anger out and we're like, we're going to go contend for the faith, you know. But to me, I've really been thinking about the idea of contending, but contending through affirmation. And what I mean by that is like, again, I'll just go with my own personal history here with, you know, the anarchist crowd and so on. You know, what they're expecting from a professing Christian is what I just described. If we get into a conversation, they're expecting us to come loaded for bear, blasting about how you're just going to hell and you're a worthless sinner and all these things. You know, really setting ourselves outside of who they are. You know what I mean? But what really blows people's minds is if you can go to a person like that and say, well, why don't you tell me about your belief system? And they start talking about things like, well, I just think everybody is equal and we need to be, we need to establish systems and laws that preserve that and protect that. To look at that same person and say, you know what? I actually totally agree with those values. And this might blow your mind. But I would tell you that the God of the Bible is actually working for those same values that you're working for. It's going to be defined differently, and it's going to be centered in Christ as the hope of that world coming about. But I want to affirm that thing in you. I think that's a good thing. I am not compromising. I am contending, but it's, it's contention through affirmation out of the theological belief that even somebody like Antifa or your, you know, pick your thing, they've all got the image of God in them. And because of that, distorted as it may be, just like us, the, there is the presence of the fingerprints of God, I think, in almost any ideological system and certainly in every person. There's something to find uh, as that gospel starting point. Yeah, that's that's great. I'm sure we could talk more on that. But I think there's some related questions here that we can easily shift into. One of them is, what is your stance on social justice and related? Do you think there's been a shift within the evangelical church at large from a passion for sharing the gospel to a passion for social activism? What would be your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know if there's been any kind of a massive shift. I think, mo- you know, most evangelicals that, that I know are very passionate about sharing the gospel. I think that many evangelicals, myself included, would recognize that we have, um, we've always been passionate about sharing the gospel, but maybe we've been a bit negligent when it comes to issues of justice that are sort of right under our nose that we might actually be tending to as part of our gospel presentation by, you know, Proclaiming the gospel in word, in, in deed, not simply in word. So in some ways, I think that there's, it, it's a, I see it as kind of healthy, actually turning us a, a bit toward current injustices and things. Uh, and to think about the reality, you know, when you're, you know, you're evangelical, when you're, you know, premillennial, when you're thinking in terms of Jesus returning and the rapture happening and, and all of that sort of stuff, you know, you can tend to just sort of look around and say, well, it's all going to burn. And so that what does it matter? Let's just get out and, you know, get people saved. And we do want to get out and we do want to see people get saved. But we also have to recognize that, you know, we might not see the Lord return 
and I've got kids and I've got grandkids and they, they're going to have kids and they're going to be successive generations that follow me. And what kind of world do I want them to live in? I hope they live in a world of justice. So I think the church's presence in the world, I think justice is, is part of who we are and should be demonstrating that in the, in the culture. And it's not to the exclusion of preaching the gospel. I think it's, it's actually part of preaching the gospel. I just taught evangelism at another church, and one of the things I pointed out was that there's not just one way that the Bible talks about sharing the gospel. Yeah. In fact, I listed out eight different models for sharing the gospel, everything from Matthew inviting his friends over to his house for dinner, mm-hmm. right? Other people, like in John 1, where somebody saying, I don't know the answer to your question, but why don't you come and see for yourself, you know? And, you know, then there's, of course, Peter's confrontory approach, which is an absolutely valid approach. It's found in Acts chapter two, where he says, you killed Jesus, now repent and be saved. Right. But another view on this is like Dorcas, right? So we read about Dorcas and that she was somebody who had this ministry of serving people. I mean, this is, this is biblical gospel outreach. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do have an upcoming episode in which we will talk more about this idea of gospel renewal, which is one of the values of CGN. And so we'll talk more about that soon. Now, let's shift a little bit. Someone asked this question. If a married LGBT couple signs up to attend our church's marriage ministry or retreat or conference, are we prohibited from allowing them to participate? What would you say about that? Are we prohibited from allowing them to participate? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, The crazy thing is this is the world we live in. And so this is not a hypothetical, like, hey, this would never happen, but let's just say, what if it did happen? This could happen quite easily. Personally, I could could just say personally for me, I would do my best to graciously explain to that couple why this is not a place for you to be. And it wouldn't be comfortable for you. It wouldn't be comfortable for anybody else. But hey, we've got a church service here on Sunday morning and come on in and hear what God has to say. You know, so I I think we have to be wise. We obviously have to stand strong on scripture, but we also have to be sensitive to the spirit. And, you know, what is the spirit leading us to do at at this moment? I, I, yeah, I, I, you know, a marriage retreat, a gay couple, I don't think it's a fit. Mm-hmm. You know, I had someone at my church ask me the other day, they said, what would you do if a gay person came to church on Sunday? <laughs> and I said, what do you mean, what would I do if? In a church of 500 people, yeah. you better believe that statistically, yeah. we're talking about uh, 4% of the population roughly is out, if yeah. you will. And the, there's another 3 to 4% who are closeted, which means we're talking about 7%-ish of the total population. And if you just do the math, there are, there are people coming. Mm-hmm. In fact, I know of them. And, of course, I don't uh, point it out to the whole congregation. Hey, everybody, look at this person, right? <laughs> but they are. And, and what do we do? Well, to open your Bible to wherever we're studying today. Yeah. We're going to teach the scriptures and we're going to do everything we can 
to help point them to Jesus. Yeah, and I think I think you know somebody asked me this question some time ago. A lady came up to me who's a business owner, and she had hired an employee, and she found out you know that the after the fact she found out the employee was gay. She was really concerned. She came and asked me, you know, what what should I do? And I you know I kind of had a little bit of fun with her. I just I asked her this question. I said, let me let me ask you this before I respond. I said, do you have any other centers that work for you? And she, I really didn't need to say much else. She started laughing and she said, okay, I get it. So in a general sense, I think, you know, you know, gay, straight, whatever the case, we're all sinners, right? Mm -hmm. But going back to the original question, I think a marriage retreat is something very specific. And so that's where I think you would have to be very specific in Mm -hmm. the way you dealt with that, where I think you could be more general in just, you know, a congregational setting or, or something like that. Yeah. And just for my part, I think this is one of those things where we have to be really careful to look on at the approach to answering that, to responding to those situations in somebody else's life and ministry with too much of an armchair quarterback (laughs) demeanor. You know, I just feel like today one of the other things is I think ministry and our thinking in ministry needs to become hyper-localized again in so many ways. Because so much of the controversy I see is like, you know, somebody in New York seeing on social media Brian's approach to this and going, well, I don't know if I w- if that, that should be done, but they're reading it through the lens of who they are and their church and their community. And I just think, like, it's good to talk about stuff like this, but I just want to challenge people to stop looking at others and just be led by the Holy Spirit and and meeting and ministering to the actual humans who are in front of your face with actual names and actual situations cuz i just that's just my conviction i think it's it's not there's a lot less of a te- uniform template that we need to be arriving at in this and much more of a a very personal yeah. relational spirit led approach and let's give each other a break and and some space to to do that yeah absolutely absolutely i mean the, these kinds <laughs> of of things that are just prevalent in the culture that we're we're having to address these days, there is no one size fits all. Yeah, I mean, if I could just, I, I'm I'm thinking of a friend I won't out because of you know, but I I got a friend who was pastoring a church about ten years ago in a, in another country, and they had a, a young somebody who was born female show up at their church who professed to be a male, and they also had a, a moment in evangelistic situation where they profess to have become a Christian. And, you know, there's there's the intersection, isn't it? What do I do with this person? Do I tell them they must stop talking about themselves in this way that I know to be biblically inaccurate right now, or you cannot come to our sacred space anymore? What are you going to do with this? And this friend of mine's approach, he just felt like the Holy Spirit said, you need patience. And the one place they need to be is in the community of Christ where the Word and the Spirit of God are. And so you don't kick them out. You just bear with them, walk with them. And there's all those fears. Well, what is it going to say? Is it going to say that I'm affirming? Is it going to tell this? And is it, and he just was like, you know what? That's not my business. I'm in this context with this person right here. And over the long haul, he saw the Lord work mm-hmm. and transform to where that person came around and began to agree with God. And that sounds like discipleship and transformation to me. <laughs> and it sounds like Jesus. I mean, you know, when you read through the Gospels, it, you, you know, there there is no one size fits all with Jesus. I mean, he is, he is dealing differently with almost every person that comes to him. He's got a completely different approach depending on their situation. So 
I love that. And I think, you know, this is where being spirit-led is uh, absolutely essential. It's always essential. Mm -hmm. But I think today, you know, we have got to be led by the spirit. And sometimes you're going to be led by the spirit to do stuff that some people are going to go, I, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like that. I think that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. But again, that, that was what the Pharisees said about almost everything Jesus did. <laughs> so we yeah. really have to be. Yeah. And to your wise. point with the couple, the hypothetical couple as well, uh, this friend of mine, he, it, it, he spoke to them about this as well. He told yeah. them it wasn't this sheepish, well, I don't want to rock the boat. Yeah. He told them like, look, this is what the Bible says about your identity. And I want you to come to that conclusion. And they were, you know, kind of hesitant and resistant. Are you sure? But he said, I just want you to know that you are still welcome here. But this is where, you know, so it's, mm-hmm. it's that, again, that balance of you don't have to be mean or kick somebody out yeah. to tell them the truth. And you don't have to compromise to embrace them either, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah Preston Sprinkle has done a, a ton of work on the issues of gender and sexuality, and he runs the Center for Faith, Gender and Sexuality. And I've, I've benefited so much from that because we, we in our church, have dealt with uh, situations like this, and it gets complicated when it gets into volunteers and, like, at what degree can this person be involved beyond just attending, if at any? And, you know, some of the things that he's talked about, he's done a lot of statistical analysis of it. And one of the things that he came across was the fact that the majority of LGBTQ people who were polled said that their issue with Christianity was not Christian doctrine or beliefs, including the doctrine and belief that um, to practice homosexual behavior is sinful, that's actually not where they took issue. They said it was with the attitudes of Christians Mm -hmm. and the ways that they were treated. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the two can exist at the same time, kindness and truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they have to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Last question. Is there a point where spiritual formation can move into an unhealthy territory, for example, a new agey territory? So this idea of spiritual formation. (laughs) Well, I guess it depends on how you define spiritual yeah, what does it formation. Mean? And, what are we talking you about? Know, so, <clears throat> you know, I love the biblical text that I think is at the root of the Christian idea of spiritual formation. And that's, you know, Paul expressing that he is like a woman uh, laboring in birth pains again, speaking to the Galatians, until Christ be formed in you. Spiritual formation is Christ being formed in you. Synonym for spiritual formation is discipleship. So sometimes people kind of just, you know, terminology kind of throws mm-hmm. people off sometimes. Spiritual formation emphasizes maybe a little more than than your typical discipleship does in the sense that your typical discipleship might be, hey, let's get together, let's read the Bible together, let's pray together, let's, you know, two or three different things where spiritual formation is going to talk <laughs> maybe more about a little more of a meditative approach Maybe you are going to fast or maybe you're going to, you know, be in some solitude or some silence or something like that. And some of that stuff can freak people out. They think, well, that just sounds so new agey. Well, if you stop and think about it, what's new agey about solitude, getting away? We read in the Bible, Jesus practiced solitude. Mm -hmm. He got away a lot of times. Being quiet, the Bible says, be slow to speak, swift to hear. I mean, that's not a new agey thought. That's a biblical thought. So I think it's just... You know, things get sort of labeled and in a person's mind, whenever they hear the word, it's like a trigger, like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, if you want to get spiritually formed into Buddhism, yeah, you you will end up in, uh, with a new agey emphasis. But mm-hmm. if you're getting spiritually formed in Christ with the Bible as the, the foundation for that, then, man, you need to get Christ formed in you. That's what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah I, I totally agree. I think this is definitely another situation, isn't it, where we, we need to have slower, specific conversations and not just hear something like spiritual formation, have all the auto response words and pictures that come to mind and go, that's what this person believes. And it's bad, you know, like to ask each other, what do you mean when you use that term? So for, I think that some of this question is probably coming from this uh, summer, we had our international conference and there was a Char, my friend, your son, <laughs> spoke on this yes. topic. And him. you know that, right? Yeah. And then we had a panel on it. And so to me, this is this is how I think about it. Like there's the there's the goal and the nature of spiritual formation. And I think the way that we mean it in our circles of friends and so on when we talk about it. But then there's there both historically and contemporarily and individually, there are different practices that people um, associate with this or try to use to cultivate spiritual formation. So, again, I just agree with you, Brian, that spiritual formation to me, I just think of it as the uh, the transforming of the person into the image of Christ. That's biblical, right? In the context of living a life as a disciple. Okay, so the, the nature of it is transformity to Christ's image in the context of his life, the life of discipleship. But then I think where all the fuzziness and the, and the, the confusion and even the debate comes and looking at what do people use to cultivate that in their life. And there's, again, there's just going to be diversity. So it's interesting to me on this point that there is controversy because especially in a movement like Calvary Chapel, I think there's a lot who would hear spiritual formation and because of associations, they're like, oh, you're Catholic or you're this or that. But then they'll talk about how they have their devotions and spiritual disciplines. You know, and what the, it's, well, I, what does that look like for you? Well, I journal. I, I read at 8 a.m. every morning before I go on my run. I listen to uh, this sermon on my commute. You know, I, I pray. I do this. I do that. Well, really, that is, uh, that's just a very Western evangelical, non-denominational way of talking about what I think most of us mean when we use the word spiritual formation or spiritual formation practices. So in answer to the question, can it get new agey and, and weird? Yeah, and it has, and it does it, it, it historically and today. But that doesn't have to be where we go just because we believe in this concept that we are being formed spiritually into the image of Christ and that there are practical things that we can do to cultivate that. And of course, we want to measure those practices with scripture and so on. But last thing I want to say about this is, again, this is another thing where we need to let people have diversity. You know, some people are really strong readers. Some people like to to pray sitting down at a table for an hour in the morning. Some people like to go in the mountains and have a prayer walk, you know, and that doesn't mean they're worshiping nature. It just means that the way that they're wired is stuff just flows a little better when you get out and walk. They might use the word meditation instead of prayer, and it doesn't mean they're into transcendental meditation. It means, you know, you get the point. And so, again, I just think it's not as, I think we overcomplicate it by not having slow enough conversations and we need to let people have personalities and differences in how they cultivate that. And and like you're saying, Kellen, I think, you know, (laughs) we we have a knee-jerk a lot of times it's a knee jerk response. We don't even really know exactly what it means. We just have some suspicion that it, that it means something negative. So we hear it and automatically we're like, oh, okay, well, you know, we're, 
were really concerned, you know, that that person used that term. You know, one of the probably the most popular people in the spiritual formation realm as a writer would be Dallas Willard. Mm-hmm. And even with Dallas Willard, I mean, you mention his name and some people are like, oh, whoa, that guy's bad. You know, you read Dallas Willard's book. You're like, this guy's amazing. I mean, yeah. this guy knew Jesus and he's just encouraging me to know Jesus in a deeper way. So I think a lot of it is just preconceived, incorrect assumptions mm-hmm. about certain things. Yeah. And like we were talking about how there are systems of thought where you you might believe something you have in common with the system of thought. It doesn't mean you subscribe to the whole thing. Right. It's the same thing with every Bible teacher, right? I mean, I don't even agree with you on everything, right? You know? it's, no, it's, like, it's like, you know, we, it's possible whether it's, I mean, there are great Catholic writers. I know that was the shot heard around the world. Okay. <laughs> but But look, these are the facts. There are some Catholic theologians out there who I might disagree on super important things and would not wholesale affirm them as teachers, right? But they might make a comment that I'm like, man, that was dynamite. And you know what? I'm going to take it because I know that that thing is in accord with Scripture. And I think that that ability to engage in critical thinking is just so important. Mm -hmm. I want to encourage you, if you're listening, maybe you've been that kind of person that you've got a favorite teacher. and, And so anybody they say, well, you can't listen to that idea because it comes from such and such a person to, to really start to process if that's a good way to be. Can we not affirm some things that somebody says without agreeing with everything that they say, just in the same as other ideological systems? And, and, and so I mean, look, we have a biblical precedent for it. The Apostle Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul is quoting <clears throat> pagan Greek philosophers, right? and he's taking what they said and making it a truth for believers. Yeah. So some if, of your own poets have said, yes, yeah, the, 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 if the Christian church had said to Paul, see, Paul is really a pagan. Well, why do you know? Because he quotes their books and he yeah. quoted that guy who's like a guru. Yeah. In, <laughs> in him, we live and move and have our being. Paul is quoting a pagan poet. He's new age. you know, And yet he's yet he's expressing a universal biblical truth. And so, yeah, we just we have to be careful. Something I've heard from a few people, both on the the race issues and the social justice things, and including this last one that we're mentioning now on the spiritual formation, a lot of people I've talked to, they said, well, I don't actually have a problem with what you're saying yeah. or with this statement, for example. I'm just afraid of where it's going to go. That, that slippery slope idea. Yeah. I mean, just kind of final thought. What would you say to that person? Well, if we, you know, if we ever move away from an absolute conviction that the Bible is God's word, if we ever move away from the authority, inspiration, inerrancy of scripture, then you should be worried and you should hightail it in the other direction. But as long as we're standing firm there, you don't have to worry about anything. Yeah. And just for me, (laughs) the whole nature of the Christian life is described as one as healthy change. You know, I mean, I think of be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That didn't happen two weeks after you became a Christian when you got all the needed information. You know, I mean, even the whole idea of being transformed into the image of Christ, I talk about it as a, as a whole life, lifelong, slow cook journey. And just the nature of discipleship, the nature of spiritual growth, does it not imply? And again, that command, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. Keep letting the way you think 
get adjusted and adjusted and adjusted over the course of your whole life so that you can keep becoming more Christ-like. Yeah, I, I think to me, that that way of thinking of like, oh, you just arrived. It's just it's completely contrary to the way uh, that the Bible describes that situation. And so yeah, so for me, that is that's 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 the right way to think about our life in Christian growth. It, it implies that need to keep revisiting what we think and keep taking Scripture and dragging our ideas and dragging our beliefs back to Scripture all the time. And you should expect that change is going to happen, as opposed to the contrary. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the CGN Mission and Methods podcast. In our next episode, we will be discussing one of the theological streams CGN belongs to, which is continuationism. We believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, including the so-called sign gifts, are still in operation and are available to believers today and that we need to depend on the person and work of the Holy Spirit to do God's work in the world today. We explain why we believe these things, what we think it looks like in practice. You will not want to miss that episode coming out next. New episodes are being released every two weeks, so make sure you subscribe to the podcast so those episodes will be delivered to your device as soon as they come out. We'd love to hear feedback from you on these episodes. You can email us at cgn at calvarychapel.com. And if you'd like to support this podcast, one of the best ways you can do that is by giving us a rating and review on your podcast app. Written reviews are particularly helpful in helping us boost this content so other people can find it and benefit from it. Until next time, God bless you.